Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Good morning. Thank you, members and guests. Dr. Adrian Wagg is a specialist in geriatric and general internal medicine with expertise in health services research. He is currently a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta and professor of continent sciences at the University of, of Gothenburg in Sweden. His research interests involve improving the quality of care for older adults. He is active in guideline development and is the co-chair of the International Consultation on Incontinence. Prior to this, he was General Secretary of the International Continence Society and President of the Canadian Continence Foundation. Dr. Wag will now present what has become a very controversial topic lately, acute and long-term impact of anticholinergics. Thank you, Dr. Wag. Hello there. My name is Adrian Wag. I'm the Alberta Health Services Chair in Healthy Aging at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. In this session, we're going to discuss the acute and long-term effects of antimuscarinics for overactive bladder. These are my potential financial conflicts of interest. As you're all aware, prescription of drugs with antimuscarinic properties is extremely common, and they're prescribed for a range of conditions, whether this be respiratory or neurological conditions, mental health or gastrointestinal disorders, allergies, or as we all know, overactive bladder. Similarly, overactive bladder is common in older people and up to half of older adults will have exposure to anticholinergic medications, sometimes multiple ones simultaneously to treat coexistent comorbidities. Again, as we know, muscarinic receptors, M1 through M5, are widespread in the body throughout the nervous system, in cardiac and respiratory tissue, smooth muscle, the striatum of the brain, and the central nervous system. This distribution probably reflects the acute adverse events that we commonly see during treatment. This slide looks at the various sightings of muscarinic receptors and potential adverse effects, such as in the eye where anti-muscarinic activity may well worsen closed angle glaucoma, in the heart, where an increase in resting pulse rate and increase in atrioventricular conduction velocity may ensue. Anticholinergics are used in respiratory disease as they dilate the bronchioles in COPD or asthma. In the gastrointestinal tract, of course, we see dry mouth, relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, and a reduction, although not clinically significant, reduction in gastrointestinal motility in the upper GI tract, but constipation in the lower GI tract. Likewise, in the CNS, we may see sedation, delirium, and impairment of condition, cognition. If we look at acute adverse events, and this comes from a recent systematic review of adverse events using Myra Begron and placebo as a comparator, we can see that in terms of dry mouth, there's a relative risk of increase uh, associated with many of our antimuscarinic agents. This is likewise true for constipation. But however, uh, somewhat differently to that which is often quoted, the number of treatment emergent adverse events versus placebo are much the same uh, with all of our antimuscarinic agents and Myra Begron. Clearly, this is different from drug-related adverse events. 
Well, there's been a lot of talk recently about anticholinergic burden and the association of high anticholinergic burden with an increased risk of incident dementia diagnosis. Anticholinergic burden is the cumulative exposure to one or more anticholinergic medications and the associated increased risk of adverse events. High anticholinergic burden is associated with poor health outcomes. It's been variably associated with decreased physical function, cognitive decline, falls, hospital admission, and increased all-cause mortality. So how is anticholinergic burden calculated? Well, there are a number of scores and scales which have been designed to quantify the level of anticholinergic burden, and a few of them are listed here. I will show all of the rest of them in a moment. These scales typically categorize anticholinergic medications as well as medications with anticholinergic side effects into groups based upon their level of anticholinergic activity or the propensity to lead to antimuscarinic adverse events. There are 16 scales of various methods of validity, validating various populations and used in different studies. Some of them are now discontinued and have not been developed further. The one we've seen most frequently is the anticholinergic cognitive burden scale. But they've all got significant limitations. We should re realize this before we look at evidence and critically analyze the results. The majority of scales haven't considered multiple actions of medicines on muscarinic subtypes. Anticholinergic adverse events are maybe dose dependent and the relative anticholinergic activities of various medicines are unlikely to be proportional. There has been no consensus on the definition of an anticholinergic medicine or a medicine with anticholinergic properties. Each scale numbers anticholinergic medications differently and may rank anticholinergic potency differently. They also either include or do not include anticholinergic medications, and this varies according to scale. Some scales do consider the impact of different routes of administration, while others exclude them, and none of them have been validated according to serum anticholinergic activity. If you look at serum anticholinergic activity and cognition, what do we see? Well, this study from Malsant back in 2003 noted an increased propensity and likelihood to, dis to score low on a Falstein mini mental state examination in association with higher serum anticholinergic activity. In a sample of 200 uh, community dwelling older people. And indeed, in observational studies, one sees an increased risk of cognitive impairment with an increase in serum anticholinergic activity. However, in the same study by Saladuddin, you see that if you look at the RCTs, this association is lost. And anticholinergic burden scales, as we said, identify a variable number of people exposed depending on the score and the scale used. And as you can see, this variability can be quite wide. The anticholinergic cognitive burden scale, the most commonly used in more recent papers, is available in the, on this website, agingbraincare.org. It's regularly updated, but you will see, like many of the other scales, there are omissions and commissions and different level of potency accorded to some antimuscarinic medications in this scale as compared to others. Similarly, there's been an association between antimuscarinic drug use and cognition brain metabolism and brain atrophy noted in this study of 300 patients without significant memory concerns uh, 
where the use of anticholinergic medications has been associated with poorer cognition, particularly immediate memory recall and executive function. A tendency towards reduced glucose metabolism in areas of the brain and whole brain and temporal load atrophy, accompanying cognitive decline. This study by Richardson, published in the BMJ in 2018, looks at the odds ratios of dementia diagnosis by prescription of any divine daily dose and total burden of anticholinergics measured with the anticholinergic cognitive burden scale. As the ACB score increased, we saw a small effect size with odds ratios between prescription of any drug with an anticholinergic scale, scale score of one, two or three and an incident dementia diagnosis. This ranged between six and 11%, but there was no clear association with an increase in anticholinergic potency. Likewise, some of the reported associations were inconsistent. For example, antipsychotic drugs with a score of three showed no association, whereas antidepressants and neurological agents, including drugs for OAB, with the same potency classification did show such an association. This study also uh, claimed that these relationships were seen even for exposures some 15 to 20 years before the incident dementia diagnosis. The, the authors control for many comorbidities associated with the dementia and dementia prodrome. This more recent study uh, from Blaine Welk in uh, um, Canada, published in the BJU International, looked at the differential risk of incident dementia diagnosis over two years according to either anticholinergic OAB drug or beta-3 agonist and showed an increased risk of dementia uh, diagnosis with anti-muscarinic use, use versus uh, myrobegron. This was more commonly seen in younger men than others in the cohort. And likewise, in an analysis of the type of antimuscarinic agent used using immediately release oxybutynin as the reference, we saw that our newer antimuscarinics were associated with a reduced risk of incident dementia diagnosis. For example, we do see the avoidance of anticholinergic agents for OAB in many of our guidelines where patients are at risk of cognitive decline. We are, however, not able to significantly prognosticate whether this is true or not. There is, of course, data in frail nursing home residents for tolteridine and extended release oxybutynin, where there was no cognitive decline or, and no delirium over a year. In fact, uh, the association between delirium and antimuscarinic agents for OAB is confined to case reports, often in those with comorbidity likely to lead to cognitive impairment. Of course, our newer antimuscarinics have a variable CNS penetration potential. They're listed here from the least on the left to the most on the right, our old friend oxybutynin immediate release, which also has the highest PKA for M1 receptors in the brain, those associated with short-term memory, concentration and attention. 5-hydroxymethyltolteridine, darafenicin and trospium are likewise substrates for the permeability glycoprotein system, which causes active efflux from the CNS. And this may account for the relatively low uh, incidence of CNS adverse events with those drugs in clinical trials. This is shown in this slide from a Caligari, which is a, a, an in vivo study um, where we can see that drugs which are PGP substrate, substrates get very low brain concentrations and those that are not uh, are 
consequently higher. So what can we say about anti-muscarinics and cognitive function? What are the factors that might increase susceptibility? Well, certainly those factors which increase blood-brain barrier permeability, age, comorbidities such as poorly controlled diabetes, the dementias, multiple sclerosis, poorly controlled hypertension and Parkinson's disease and the akinetic rigid syndromes. Likewise, cognitive impairment and age itself, of course, is associated with a reduced density of anti-muscarinic receptors. What do we know about OAB drugs and cognition? Well, we have short-term cognitive battery study in cognitively intact older adults with OAB for darafenacin, solofenacin, the oxybutin in transdermal gel, tolteridine, trospium chloride, and physoteridine. We have one study of older adults with mild cognitive impairment who did not have OAB at that trial of solofenacin. We have observational studies for fesoteridine and propivirine, which have monitored mini mental state examination scores and found no change over 12 weeks and uh, to now over one year. A trial of Mara Begron recently reported in European Urology used the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Scale and showed no change in scores over the 12 weeks of therapy. We're clearly lacking detailed long-term studies for our OAB drugs. We know, for example, that OAB is associated with the doubling of the risk of falls. We also know from one trial that antimuscarinic treated OAB reduces the risk of falls, somewhat going against the adage that anticholinergics should be stopped regardless because they do uh, increase risk of falls. OAB uh, seems to outweigh that risk. The other thing that's quite interesting is that the OAB brain may be different and may actually be uh, somehow uh, fated to develop cognitive impairment. Studies in community dwelling elderly link structural white matter hyperintensity with impairment in mobility, cognitive impairment, urinary urgency and urinary urgency incontinence. In fact, older individuals with greater white matter hyperintensity burden show an increased prevalence of detrusor overactivity and difficulty maintaining continence on urodynamic studies. Urinary urgency in particular appears to be a harbinger of incipient frailty and may be a final common pathway in many of the geriatric syndromes. So in conclusion, we know that antimuscarinic drugs for OAB are a heterogeneous group in terms of their pharmacokinetics, their formulations and mode of delivery. And this may influence the risk of central nervous system adverse effects. The OAB brain may indeed be predisposed towards development of cognitive impairment. Current available data on the association between incident dementia diagnosis and OAB drugs are weighted to those drugs which have well-recognized central effects such as oxybutin immediate release. And this seems to skew current recommendations. Longer term evaluation of drugs with more favorable pharmacokinetic profiles is needed and studies of people with a dementia diagnosis likewise, likewise would be of benefit. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. Please ask any questions in the Q&A. And I have a question. Um, here's a question from Dr. Welk. Dr. Wag, how do you reconcile the short-term safety, cognitive safety studies with OABAC and the long-term studies showing the risk of dementia? Does short-term cognitive change necessarily correlate with eventual dementia? Um, I don't think it does. I think that's clearly those people who are vulnerable to short-term side effects, such as delirium, are at greater risk of dementia. 
uh, but our antimiscarinic side effects of lesser than delirium would, would probably not be, uh, and certainly maybe not noticeable. Our sh short-term uh, studies, uh, as I said, are all in those people with intact cognition. Those individuals may well have uh, enhanced cognitive reserve. For instance, uh, some of Gary Kay's work in uh, Georgetown, I think uh, a significant proportion of the 19 in, in the study were retired professors. And they, you might say, have significant buffer against the effects of, of cognitive, uh, um, adverse cognitive effects of atheniboscarinics. So do you think these, um, this correlation, based on what you said, it seems that maybe the patient with OAB is more predisposed to cog cognitive defects. Do you believe there's a causative effect or that it's correlative? Um, it, at the moment, we, it's an association. There's clearly a signal. Uh, there's a lot more careful longitudinal data to be looked at, and it would be nice to have prog prospective data. There are more un unanswered questions, I think, than, than answered. The, the scales and scores really need some reasonable validation. They, they count what they're designed to count. Uh, Dr. Zilio has a question. Do you think an RCT is feasible? Uh, well, I think potentially, yes, uh, it, it would be uh, done carefully. The problem is that the modeling uh, and the, uh, the controlling uh, for, for risk factors is, is so potentially complex. Uh, certainly, we know that reduction of anticholinergic burden in frail nursing home residents makes no difference for cognition. So we're dealing with quite a complex environment in the first place. Mm -hmm. And apparently, we're out of time. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SufuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.